Welcome to the History of Eye Care, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the evolution of modern eye care. We'll hear the stories of today's thought leaders, innovators, and legends. By exploring the past, we can better shape the future. From anterior segment and refractive surgery to retina, plastics, and glaucoma, no part of eye care's rich history will be left in the dark. Here's your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, an eye surgeon and curious historian who is ready to uncover the landmark moments and untold stories that have revolutionized eye care. Welcome to another episode of the History of Eye Care. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Herbert Gould, who is a distinguished ophthalmologist with an incredible career. He studied at places such as Columbia to Harvard, as well as the Moorfield Eye Hospital in London. He spent most of his career in New York and has been a founding member of various professional societies, such as the Contact Lens Society of Ophthalmologists, the New York Intraocular Lens Implant Society, and the American Intraocular Lens Implant Society, now known as ASCRS. He's also a member of the International Intraocular Lens Implant Club, and the International Society of Refractive Surgery. Dr. Gould's impact on the field of ophthalmology has transcended borders, as is seen by his groundbreaking work in different countries. Notably, he implanted one of the first intraocular lenses in China as part of his collaboration with the IIIC, and also played a role in the development of LASIK. In addition to his outstanding medical achievements, Dr. Gould proudly served as a major in the U.S. Air Force, where he worked as a flight surgeon for five years. Dr. Gould, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you decided to get into ophthalmology and medicine? Well, it's a long story. Patience, I'll tell you. First of all, I'm from Boston. I went to uh, Boston Latin School. Then I went to uh, Bowdoin College. Then I decided to get out of there. I went to New York and went to Columbia, WMD, interned at Bellevue. Then they had a doctor's draft, and we all had a volunteer. I told them, um, I go in the Air Force and they taught me how to fly an airplane. I was only kidding, but they put me in a program. I uh, became a flight surgeon in the Air Force. So I learned how to fly an airplane and uh, I got medical pay and flying pay. Now they sent me to London uh, with the Third Air Force. It was the height of the Cold War, but we were really expecting action. And while in London, I uh, socially met Mr. Choice. Now, you know, in England, if you're an um, ophthalmologist or a surgeon, you're not a doctor anymore, you're a mister. And that goes back to the Middle Ages when the scholars were bloodletting. And, uh, I had some relatives there, and the next door next neighbor was Mr. Choice. Now, Mr. Choice was an ophthalmologist. <laughs> and now I realized he was a real doctor. And he said he had a little... Uh, Theater next door in his house, he was doing surgery, eye surgery. And uh, what he did was he invited me over to watch him. And he um, said, I have a treatment for aphasia. They had a cataract operation, and he opened the eye after the surgery and put a little lens inside his eye. And that was the first experience I had <laughs> in knowing about ophthalmology of intraocular lens. Well, that impressed me. And so I got out of the Air Force and went to Harvard and then Manhattan Eye there. Well, Manhattan Eye was a real American center of surgery. Tony Payton was one of the first real corneal surgeons and the founder of the Eye Bank at Manhattan Eye there. Byron Smith was the father of American um, 
cosmetic surgery. And so the, there was a really flood of new... When I was in England and I met the real master of ophthalmology, who was Stuart Duke Elder, and he said, ophthalmology is a medical specialty, not surgical. And this is all of the background of the resistance to interocular lenses. So Ridley himself, who observed that plastic was inert in the eye, and asked uh, a contact lens maker to make a little lens, weighed 110 milligrams inside the eye. He was really horribly abused. And it was interesting because there was there were two Ridleys. One was Frederick Ridley, who put plastic outside the eye, and when I was Troutman's fellow, I went to study with Frederick Ridley about how to put flush fittings lot of shells on the eye to protect the cornea. And I started that clinic in Manhattan Island here. And I was one of the first to do contact lenses in Manhattan Island here. Because they thought contact lenses were optometrists, not ophthalmologists. And I helped found the Contact Lens Association of Ophthalmology while I was a senior resident. So we're beginning to grow in ophthalmology, looking at plastics now outside the eye. And then I remembered inside the eye, and we were seeing a lot of complications because while in concept of documents was a really valuable one, the execution was a disaster because fixation was the problem. And the wobble got loose, they hit the cornea, got many cases of um, corneal decompensation, bones keratopathy. Well, all this was going along during my residency. And I was Troutman's resident who said that implants were time bombs. And if you put an implant the human eye, eventually it would be a disaster. So that is how I started my interest in intraocular lenses <laughs> from the opposite scheme, opposite scale. And then I was disappointed with my, I wrote the pepper and gave, uh, uh, we got hydrogel lenses coming in. Czechoslovakia, that curious episode where a kitchen chemist decided that uh, made a hydrogel and a hard form could be made into a lens, and then soft lenses came into being, and that replaced my hard lens, flush fitting lens. So we use use the term bandaged lens. That's where it came from, and I was working with Herbert Kaufman at the time friend of mine from the Harvard, the Harvard days, and now we have a new way of treating cornea disease with a hydrogel lens. So that was what I was doing, lenses outside the eye, and now I've got interested in lenses inside the eye. The problem was fixation. And intraocular lenses, and intracapsular lenses, both. Nobody realized that Ridley was still doing extracapsular surgery one of the first surgeons to do implants uh, in New York and Philadelphia, Hammond, was doing extra cap. Nobody, extra cap was a discarded ancient method of taking out a cataract. In the old days, way before my time, you had to wait for cataract to ripen. What does that mean? Where's People had to go through blindness before they had cataract surgery. It was so dangerous. We even did cataracts now nine here in the general anesthesia. 
it was a big operation. And uh, cut the eye open and pull out the cataract. And of course, the, um, uh, the leading surgeon was um, uh, at Johns Hopkins, who made the instruments to pull out the cataract. And so, intracapsule was the mode of cataract surgery. And because of that, fixation of the lens had to be on the iris or the anterior chamber. Now, choices then were on the anterior chamber, and Ismark IV was the first of the group. And so here we're beginning to developing this interest. What year was that, by the way? Well, 58 was the first lens I saw, but I was still in the Air Force. Wow. I didn't even know what, what cataracts <laughs> were. That was before I got the general surgeon. Then I learned the hard way of an at and iron air. <laughs> that was 1960. When I got out of the Air Force in 1960 and uh, started my residency and started practicing in about 60 and stayed in New York. All of this whirling around, and we were very clumsy. And you know, we couldn't see what we were doing when we were using four-time Jewel's loops. When somebody mentioned a microscope, they said, are you kidding? It gets in the way. We can't do surgery with a microscope. Trotman trying to build the microscope. It was very awkward. But he was impressed because Kenzie had taken a nylon out of the nylon stocking to design a 10 nylon suture. Couldn't even see it. So we, we stole the microscope from the ENT department. It was an Omni-1 Zeiss. And my God, we could see, actually see it. And it was a really rev real revelation. And that was when I was a senior resident. So you were a senior resident, and that was, to your recollection, one of the first times a microscope was, was utilized to visualize tenonylon. Exactly. And then I was Trotman's resident the next year. When I got through my residency, I took a year fellowship with Trotman, who was um, the master of corneal transplants. And he's the one who used nylon, tenon nylon, and introduced it. Big center of ophthalmology in Barcelona with um, Barrett. He did a great disservice because when Strampelli made a copy of Choice's anterior chamber lens, he thought, what a great idea for myopic ladies who didn't want to wear glasses. And he put a series of Basic interior chamber lines then, and that was a real disaster. And that's and he became a pioneer in in, in corneal surgery, corneal transplants, and and uh, he was the best corneal transplanter in the world. So that's where Chapman went to get some of his training. And then the other barricade went to uh, his brother, went to uh, Bogota, and of course he is a real father of LASIK because he's the one who did the first slicing the cornea and he used a microscope. Wow, he could use a microscope to do cataract surgery? And that was the beginning of modern cataract surgery. I was there watching it with awe as things were changing so rapidly. But everybody persisted in intercap surgery. But Topman himself with Barricare, he went and got an alpha-hamatrypsin to melt the uh, zonium, so it would be get, 
It was a beautiful operation, nice and clean, and extra capital, such a dirty operation. Well, I went to see uh, Holland, and in 1974, there was a meeting in Paris, and Baythorst gave this talk about how wonderful his Rothschild there with his implant, which retained the posterior capsule, and uh, put in a titanium-looped iridocapsular lens. And that's the one I used when I put the first lens in when the triple IC club started by Ridley and Choice. Uh, went to China. Xinhua Hospital, I have a sign there. Xinhua Hospital in Shanghai. And that was the first lens put in China. And our group did that in 1978. What an incredible experience. I mean, you think about it, the size of China to have put in the first intraocular lens. And the irony lives Lomini, the big shot from uh, oh, Johns Hopkins, who was the great advocate of intracap surgery. And we used his forceps. Had a group visiting China, and they were telling him about the terrible complications of intraocular lenses on the International Interocular Lens Club met in Canton. <laughs> Can you imagine the clash? That was a dramatic moment. Tell me a little bit about Ridley. Oh, he was a fascinating man. He was a fisherman. Loved to go fishing. He was a great gentleman, and a very uh, experienced ophthalmologist. He'd done some pioneer work in uh, tropical ophthalmology, tropical medicine. He's the one was there when that pilot was shot down at the East Grinstead, where the uh, great McAdoo was doing plastic surgery and burned violence. Uh, McAdoo said, uh, pilot. he had blown the canopy of his uh, Spitfire, and there were shards of plexiglass all over the wall. And I have a, a actual picture of that, which I got from the RAF library, on my wall right now, showing pilot bailing out with plexiglass all over the sky. And when he went to uh, East Grinstead and saw Ridley, well, he didn't see that he saw McAdoo, and McAdoo said, taking plastic out of his body. And he got his, his eye. Then he called Ridley over, who was the ophthalmologist on duty there, and said, you want to take the plastic out of his eye? And Ridley said, what's his vision? It's normal. Well, leave it in. And he left it in. The pilot, you see, Ridley tells this story. And then he went to Raiders, who was doing contact lenses. They were using, in those days, they only used sterile contact lenses. They didn't have sorted contact lenses. That came about while I was doing the Harvard course in 1960. So when Ridley asked, they made a implant. That was 110 milligrams. I once took one out of an eye, and I actually saw the implant itself. But he had done extra capsule surgery. Nobody understood that. So nobody understood why Ridley could do it. What held the implant in the eye? That first lens I ended up making, it was it was named Perspex. Is that right? Well, Perspex. It was interesting. Uh, I see uh, international uh, chemical industries built plastic for the Spitfires. And that plastic was Perspex, which is polymethylmethacrylate. But they 
totally hardened it. And then you put it under the sun so it was totally polymerized. Some of the copiers didn't use totally polymerized plastic, and they got uveitis. So again, another blow against the use of an intraocular lens. It wasn't inert, but they didn't realize it. Actually, I placed it was totally inert. So Perspex was the material made by made by ICI. That was the name, but it was still polymethylmethacrylate. Was plastic. November 29th, 1949 is when Dr. Harold Ridley implanted the, that very first intraocular lens there in... The registrar, we call a reg- residence. You, you took the lens out, how could the patient see? The light bulb go on, I'm going to put a lens in the eye. And that's where it all started, by one query, by a registrar. And uh, that started the whole machinery. And I told you there were two Ridleys. And the master, of course, was Sir Luke Elder, who said, we, we are a medical specialty. We call our surgeons misters. We're doctors. You know? And he wrote all those books. You know, he wrote about a dozen volumes on ophthalmology, medical ophthalmology. Nothing about surgical techniques, but a lot of stuff about uveitis. And, uh, I even wrote a paper on uveitis, um, attached to Bougie which I observed when I was in the Air Force. One of the original ideas I had going into ophthalmology. That was the um, channel lock spots in the back of the eye. I observed it in a sergeant uh, in the hospital. I couldn't figure out what it was. But that was another uh, road to ophthalmology because I brought him to this institute of ophthalmology to make a diagnosis. And uh, did the research and said, oh, this is... Cantaloupe wax spots on the retina, diagnostic of sarcoidosis. And that was another aspect of ophthalmology that I got entered into. So I was inundated by ophthalmology before I was even in residency. In 1974, there was the uh, Chan Film Festival for, uh, in the um, uh, European Society, which is the start of ophthalmology, and uh, the featured theme was intraocular implants. And uh, I, I had uh, just had done a film with my senior resident, Marguerite McDonald, who was pretty well known. And she, she and I presented a film of uh, extracapsular procedure with a corneal trace with kibble procedure had a big movie, and Fyodorov was there, and he had the same movie but with his implant. And we got the prize because I showed a one-year follow-up. And Fury, and I met Fyodorov there, and he said, Gould, you come to Moscow. I show you my operation. Throw away your glasses. I said, oh, sure. So in 1980, he invited me to come to Moscow, and uh, I went with uh, Norman Stahl, but he and I went to Moscow, and I'll never forget, it was a snowstorm, and the driver is driving us to the clinic, and uh, he, he, said, he opens the cabinet and said, that was my glasses, big thing on my optic glasses. It was a setup, of course, and uh, we uh, were very skeptical. Yeah, he California to not wear glasses? Boy, when I gave that, 
presentation. They all thought I was crazy. When the, I gave a television interview, and this uh, chief of ophthalmology from uh, Mount Sinai uh, said, Are you crazy? You're going to do corneal surgery on normal corneas so they don't have to wear glasses? Would you do it to your own daughter or your own family? Yeah, I just did to my daughter, Siobhan, and she did very well. That was a real kick. Boy, did I get help for that. Siobhan had an excellent result. She's my daughter, really, and she helped run my office. She's still around, and uh, now she has to wear reading glasses. But her myopia was cured. <laughs> So let's talk about just kind of the evolution of cataract surgery in your lifetime, because we go back to Sir Harold Ridley and, and kind of the discovery that plastics and nerd in the eye to the development of the intraocular lens, intracaps to extracaps to FACO. We got to go before that. Before that, we had intracaps in surgery. And uh and I were playing the saxophone and I was doing my, so we did the show together. His name was Charlie Chalman. And Charlie brought a bought a helicopter, was flying around in a helicopter, and he'd got a big grant to develop a method using ultrasound to take out a cataract. He was at the dentist, and, he, and the dentist was taking stuff off with teeth. He said, what are you doing? What, what is that machine? An ultrasound takes it. He said, ultrasound? No. Why don't you put it in the eye and can take out the cataract with that? That he, he had that dream. And so he and I were pals, and we used to throw courses. I had started a wine drinking society for doctors at that time. And so we used to have big parties, and then we'd have surgeons from all the world come and see this cavatron machine where you could stick it in and melt the eye. The trouble was, some of it was kind of, uh, it could do some damage to the endothelium of the eye. We were just beginning to realize that the end of the thing it wouldn't re repair itself very well. And uh, a lot of corneal uh, edema occurred and bullous keratopathy. And that's where Trotman came in and he had a big fight with Kelvin. But Kelvin persisted and developed a better machine, a more well controlled machine. And that's the history of it. Uh, that was all. Um, Intercat surgery took the whole thing out. It wasn't until later that we began to realize under Big Horse's suggestion that we leave the posterior capsule in. But then it got clouded, and you had to have another operation. You had to you're trying to do it in the office, and you get an infection. So there was no objection to leaving that capsule in. And then all of a sudden, we met an old friend of ours in Paris. Danielle Aaron Rosa, and uh, she was a member of our Interocular Implant Club and it's in the New York Society. And uh, Dr. Uh, Donick and I went to Paris and they had, she had a normal big room, and the bottom of the room was enough in a slit lamp. And she attached that and showed how she could pop open the posterior capsule with a laser. Wow, we'll call a YAG laser. That was another revolutionary development, as we know. So that the cloudy in the posterior capsule was no longer an, an obstruction to extracapsular surgery. But the security of the uh, fixation of the lens now was really assured. And that is all that came together. 
year after year. One thing we haven't talked about on the show is, what were the capsulotomies like? Um, the, the fellow in Canada, he was the one who said you had to have a really rigid way of opening up the capsule. I, but remember, we were just starting to use microscopes. You couldn't see it. You tear the capsule open and like a four-power loop. You must remember that microsurgery came in after all this and, re- and made a revolution. And now we can see what we're doing. That you can make a curvature. You bend the 25 days needle. You make a, a curvature of the a little round opening, and, pot, and then you put your facial in, take it out, preserve not only the posterior capsule itself, but a, 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 it's part of the anterior capsule too, which help fixation. I think it was actually uh, Howard Gimbel was that Canadian ophthalmologist. That's it, yeah. Howard Gimbel. You're right. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, there was no manufacturing of intraocular lenses in America until Silco was one of the first. Silco in California. And at that time, I was giving lectures about uh, about flesh fitting shells and all that, so I was getting kind of popular. So Silco came to me and said, would you start a course on intraocular lenses? So I set up a course with Jack Donick, and he and I went uh, to city to city, with a group of us who were doing intraocular lenses called the Silco course. And with that, we were the Johnny Appleseeds of intraocular lenses. We went to cities where intraocular lenses were forbidden. And uh, every once in a while, we meet somebody who was doing intraocular lenses in that city. We asked them to join the band, the band of brothers. It was like, uh, you know, Shakespeare, Henry V. Band of Brothers, we feel we happy feel we band of brothers. <laughs> we were because we were outcasts. We were terribly criticized by academic ophthalmology, especially. And the antagonism of progress in surgical ophthalmology were the academies. And that was goes all the way back to the guy who wrote all those textbooks, Sir Stuart Duke Elder. And by the way, it's interesting. He was a surgeon there during World War II, Sir Tudor Thomas, when Townley Payton was stationed in England. And he's the one who did the kickoff of corneal transplantation. Because before that, they were using pink corneas that work. They finally decided that human corneas were the only thing that could be transplanted. And they had one of the little sutures, eight old silk sutures they could use. And they sewed in, and uh, then Castor Vale came along, and he had a, a square cut corneal transplant, and he presented a clear square cut post operative corneal at the academy. And <laughs> he was booted and booed, and then Peyton came in with a tree find. That was the beginning of corneal transplant surgery in America. That all was all in New York. Amazing how much of modern ophthalmology is derived from New York. Kelman, Payton, and uh, I was lucky enough to be right there where all that activity was being <laughs> initiated. That's why it's interesting for you to know the history. <laughs> I'm pretty old. Let me go back a long way. <laughs> you want to tell the, the, the listeners how old you are? I was born December 20th. 1928, 
in Boston, Massachusetts. And that makes you 95. I can yeah. still remember all my Shakespeare lines. <laughs> that's right. So that's the other amazing thing about you is not only are you a famous ophthalmologist, you're also an actor. I was the leading actor of a community theater for years. And my wife was a brilliant actress. Both of us came from theater families. She was Kathleen Cavanaugh. We had five children. <laughs> and we had a wonderful time. What got you into theater? At 14 years old, during World War II, I was in high school, and there was a um, theater school called the Bishop Lee Theater at the bottom of Beacon Hill, where I lived. And uh, when I was in high school, it started off when I was, I used to be a stutterer. And my, my teacher uh, got me into acting to cure my stuttering. And then I went to this acting school during high school because they needed men to do parts. All the guys were in the army. When I was like 14, 15 years old. I was sort of big for my side. And then I went to Summerstock. And then we had a place in Beverly Farms, Massachusetts, and I organized a theater company for that summer, and it's called Beverly Farms Playhouse. I was the director, and I played many parts. Went to Cobb Bowden College. I was the president of Mask and Gown. I did Shakespeare there, and uh, so I had all that background. Yeah. I wanted to be an actor, but my father said, you better get a steady job. You get into medical school, I'll pay for it. So I got into Columbia. And that was my... <laughs> well, I always did that. I'm doing acting now. I'm a leading actor in a movie. My last movie just got Best Feature Film at the Paris Film Festival. We're doing a sequel to that. During my residency, I uh, joined the uh, Air, Air National Guard. That was very good. I got more. I got paid more for the Air National Guard than my residency in Manhattan Idea. But it was great fun. I could fly to Puerto Rico, and we had. <laughs> I was a commander of the uh, the squadron, the medical squadron. There's two other things I definitely want to know about. One, I want to hear about your military experience and kind of what you did in the military. And then the other thing I want to hear about is if you can kind of go into some details about your, your China trip. The history of China, the, 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 um, the Mayo had just died. China was opened by our president, Nixon, and he was waving at the Great Wall. We're opening China. We came the next year, so... We were well welcome. And I had a Polaroid camera, and I had my daughter with me, and she would sing the guitar and sing all the folk songs. And I and the kid, it was a wonderful experience. It was such a new, and we went to the the, the, the old city, and uh, they treated us like royalty. But they had a problem, a severe social problem, because through Mao's reign, there was a turnover of society. All the intellectuals were sent out to be farmers, and the farmers were brought back into the cities, and they were in the beautiful apartment houses out of the fields, and the intellectuals and the uh, performers. So they had just opened the um, Peking Opera, and they, it was an amazing experience because they all coming back to the theater after being peasants picking rice in the fields, and that Swimball, social turnover, it's so dramatic that we should feel it as we were 
visiting. Well, they treated us very well. We entertained the children, and my daughter was a real star singing folk songs on her guitar. Uh, that was a wonderful social event. What year was this? 1978. 1978, right. Uh, I, I put that through the lens, and it was the mother-in-law of the chief of ophthalmology at the Sinwar Hospital, and the next year when I met him in uh, 79 at the Jan Film Festival, uh, I, I met Dr. Lee again, and I said, how that, how'd you get, how'd, how, how was that patient doing? He said, it was my mother-in-law. And I really, yeah, she's doing fine. <laughs> so what was it like doing that? I mean, what's it, what's it like to be the, I mean, to be the first in, a, in an entire country as, as large as China? Well, I wasn't the only one. We had a group of us doing it. I was the one of the group. I'd say I was the first, but I was, I don't know, first, second, third, or fourth. <laughs> was there a big audience watching? You know, in 78, they didn't have microscopes. We had to do it with loops. But I came back in 2000 to visit, and I was doing fakic uh, lenses, and I was putting a fakic lens in. I came back again to Shinwa Hospital. It was unbelievable. It was the most modern hospital you can imagine. The contrast from this primitive little hospital in 78 to Temple. Two years later, the Meiji and the whole city changed. It was like the Emerald City and the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> from a primitive, broken down metropolis in 78. It was magical transformation at point they had Zeiss microscopes that closed circuit TV and uh, I did my surgery in the most sophisticated manner. So Charlie came a long way and that was a really good experience. Can you tell us a little bit about your military experience? I know that you you ended up as a major. They have the School of Aviation Medicine and uh, when I got through my internship at Bellevue I'm fascinated learn how to fly an airplane and get paid extra sure. 26 years old and uh, the courses were fascinating. And one of my professors was this fellow called Werner von Braun. I got to be very friendly with him at the office. Wait, like the Werner von Braun? Yeah, he was one of our professors, oh the Werner von Braun. Oh my goodness. And we're at the office of love, you know. And, uh, <laughs> I, I had taken German in high school. Now, I, 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 know a little, I knew German poetry. It fascinated me. So I'm at the bar with Von Brand and I'm quoting, Du bist wie eine Blume, so hoch und schön und rein. Ich schaudet von Wemels, schleicht mir in Herz hinein. A wonderful poem by Heinrich Heine. So he started to choke up. That's his mind of Otto Haskell's for me. My mother, that was my mother's favorite poem. Aber it's actually forgotten by the A Jew wrote that. that it was forbidden to have that poem. But here I am at the bar. I'm half Jewish myself. He told me that. And then we had a few more beers, and he said, you know, am I in the rocket? He's the one who had the rocket that hit London. He, he designed that rocket for London, to destroy London. He almost did. So he says, someday my rocket, they'll go to the moon. And we all oh, boy. Have another drink, Werner. <laughs> So you met Von Braun. He helped lead the space program. I mean, he really did help get us he, to yeah, the moon. Well, he did the rocket program. Yeah. And, and you know, they changed the name from the School of Aviation Medicine to the School of 
space medicine while I was still on active duty. So I was, a, and then they had a program of exchanging pilots with the Royal Air Force. I thought, why don't we exchange um, flight surgeons? I got, they said the approval. So I got an approval to have an exchange with a flight surgeon from uh, Transport Command of the Royal Air Force. So now I'm an acting slogger leader. I got promoted from Captain Slogger Leader, which is like a major. And he took my job at the, uh, at the hospital, and he had to do everything I did. I was also a general medical officer, too, so that when I was on duty at the hospital, I had to do everything. And we had a lot of obstetrics. A lot of babies were being delivered there. As a matter of fact, I was on duty. This is a terrible story, but I have to tell you, I, I was on a flight, in my, and I came back from a flight, and I'm checking into the operations. and said, hey, Captain, you're the medical officer on duty today. Holy mackerel, I sped out of the hospital, and I turned, and the surgeon would turn it over to me. Now I'm in charge of the whole hospital. And oh, we have four deliveries today. Four deliveries, jeez. Well, I was, a, I was a pretty good obstetrician by then. Now, episiotomy or not episiotomy was a big question in those days. <laughs> so I said, okay, what's the name of the patient? Kathleen. Kathleen, it's my wife. Oh, no. <laughs> she was a foot lean peach, pulled her out, and there was Deirdre, Regina, Kavanaugh, and Gould. My first hit, I delivered. <laughs> but I had a midwife helping me in, in character. The second child we had at home, we called the midwife in, we had with Siobhan, we had her at home. Uh, in those days, if you had a proven pelvis, which means you hospital delivery, you could have your baby at home. And they had that flying squad who come in, and a nurse came in, then I gown, and she said, boil the water, boil the water. She had a cereal pack. What's the water for? Tea, of course. <laughs> I like that one. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest moment of my life was General LeMay comes in he's going to visit my general and I look over the 3rd Air Force and he of course had he was a super guy and the number one general in the world and he says uh, hey doc I got an earache fix me up will you so he had an otitis media pure let me see okay. we uh, I gave him shot up at a cylinder I said I don't think I have to do it Preparation. I'm gonna see if we can do it that way. And of course, my sergeant called operations immediately and said the general was grounded. He needed flying time. Even the general needed flying time to get paid. So he needed a bit of flying time. He wanted to check out a T bird, T22, which one I flew. And the operation said, Sorry, general, the flight surgeon grounded you. We can't give you permission to fly. What that fucking captain? <laughs> he went into a rage. Now I was scared. <laughs> I called the commanding officer, the colonel of the hospital. Hey, listen, uh, I had I had to ground the general because if they were fixed up, I can't clear. Like, well, he pounded down, and when I finally cleared him, he said, "Come on, I'll take you for a ride." So we checked out a T bird. I'm in the back seat. He's in the front seat. We took a little ride. Where do you want to go? We had to have sun in London for a month, so we went to. Um, Pal was the commander of the Seventh Air Force from Spain. We went to the Canary Islands, had a little sun, got our, our time in, and came back. That was the beauty of the Air Force. You could fly anywhere you want. So I had to check out all the pilots. I said, Where do you want to go, Doc? I said, Well, 
Let's go down to Marseille. That's about the right time. So we flew down to Marseille. Why Marseille? Well, I want to get some bouillabaisse. We had the American Empire. It was amazing. And we could fly anywhere we wanted. Gas was 25 cents a gallon. We could drive anywhere we wanted. We had the real American Empire in the 1950s. Let me tell you, it was a glorious time to be in America. <laughs> yeah, especially coming off, coming off of World War II and... Well, you asked me about our military. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. No, I want to. What year? What year did you join the Air Force? I graduated from the School of Aviation Medicine, September '55. I did a lot of good, you know. And we and that my old my experience with the Royal Air Force. Why was I assigned to the Royal Air Force? They had the only operational passenger aircraft in the world. It was called the Comet One. The Comet One blew up, and now this was a Comet Two. They emerged. And they figured out metal fatigue and the portholes were too, but too square and they blew in and they infused it and blew up. So the new comet to, was sent to the uh, transport command, bomber support out, and the Canberra bombers were going out to Malaya. And there was an insurrection in Malaysia with the SAS troops dropping down. They, they won that war. And uh, we had uh, an air base in Singapore, Shanghai Air Force Base, and we had our military land there. And then we went from Shanghai and a little chipmunk aircraft to the jungle forts, picked up the wounded, brought them back to Shanghai, loaded them into the uh, Comet 2, and in two days they were in the hospital. Took us five days to get our wounded from Manila to the Lebanon Air Force Hospital in California. And so we were very interested in transport of patients by jet. So I wrote the first paper on jet transport of, of uh, cash please, in 1958. Wow. And well, I got a medal for that. That's awesome. That's a really cool story. I love the Air I really have great respect for the military. The mentality behind them is well organized. The troops, you know, they vary all over the place. Good one, bad one. But the concept and the orders and the vision that you have with Mancos showed great intelligence, great organization. All of them are well-trained. We're all West Pointers, you know. Who were some mentors that you had? Well, I'll start with when I met uh, Joyce. That was an opening. And then at Manhattan Idea, I had Troutman, a great surgeon, and then Pink Horst. Byron Smith was really inspirational for arthroplastic surgery. I mean, Curran and Richards won the Nobel Prize in, at Bellevue for cardiac catheterization. I was their intern at the time. Wow. So obstetrics, cardiothoracic, Diotis, to ophthalmology. To... <laughs> <laughs> You've had your hand in it all, though. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. At that time, the top medical school in the country, probably for Columbia, they all, all, all the stars were there, and they were more creative then. But there was some kind of a, a suppression of novelty in the academia, and all of the real surgical advantages and results and, and uh, the most adventurous discoveries were made by surgeons in the Phoenix. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because I... I grew up with Ralph Berkeley as my mentor. Yeah, he was, he was very adventurous. I knew Ralph. Well, he was in our interrogal You know, 
the intragalendas, we were terribly abused and criticized. You now have been reckless buccaneers. Oh, terribly. Yeah, especially if you fake emulsification. He had told me he was brought before the Texas Medical Board on two different occasions for being a, a cowboy and, and putting patients, reckless endangerment of patients for doing fake emulsification. I mean, just, just fascinating stories. I went before the board and they wouldn't take my license away. Sure, what are you doing? It's not customary to do this type of surgery. It's not community standard. That was a word they used. If you're not community standard, you're violating your oath as the doctor. Well, they gave me a terrible time. When I did radial keratotomy, you're operating on normal corneas? How can you do that? How do you have, don't you know the oath we took? Do no harm? They they do no harm thing. They threw at me all the time. Wow. And I I had two offices, one in White Plains, which was in the suburbs, and I had one in Manhattan. And I was flagellated both. <laughs> so between intraocular lenses, phacal emulsification, RK, and re- early refractive surgery, you probably met a little bit of resistance along the way, huh? And then I'm on TV, and then I'm talking about uh, wine and food. I'm an, an actor. They thought I was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly eccentric. Not quite mad, But it's good. I mean, you know, but this is what we need, right? I mean, I think about where we would be, or actually where we wouldn't be if it wasn't for pioneering surgeons such as yourself who helped to push the boundaries. And so do you have any advice for those surgeons who are trying to push boundaries now? And I I feel like there's less resistance. I feel like I feel like our field in general, at least the current generations are are very accepting and open to new things. There may be some resistance still at at different levels, but I feel like there's there's a lot more collegiality in kind of how we manage things. But there's still some resistance. Well, there's always the old guard, you know, and they want to move. They learned it. That's the way it should be. And there's certain pride in that. I understand it. Something new has to be digested. That takes time. The social digestive process that the time consumes. Absolutely. And uh, although I went through it, you don't know it when you're going through it, you know. You're going through it. Gee, that's a great idea. And you don't know about the consequences. Let me tell you, there were problems going through it. I had lenses dislocate. I had a few post-charitopathy cases. I had a lot of problems. I had lawsuits. You know, it's not an easy course. It's better to be number two, not number one. <laughs> <laughs> but we need that number one. That's what, adv- you know, that's, yeah. that's what advances us. Well, I survived and here I am. <laughs> First of all, I, I thank you so much for doing this. And I would actually love to have you back. I feel like we could definitely do a part two or part three at some point. I, I, th- I, mean, I think you have so I'll many stories. So, once more the reset friends once more <laughs> exactly exactly so one final kind of parting thought what do you feel is your greatest contribution to our field noise i made a lot of noise i disturbed it i really made the waves go i did such disparate things for my earliest paper which i published in 61 attached to bougie the diagnosis of sarcoidosis, celiac, and that was so. Then everything else was anterior segment, cataracts, 
But the eye just fascinated me, and I had wonderful teachers at the beginning. I took that Harvard course before I took my residency, which gave me the, ba the, the basis of what our philosophy is all about. And it, it, it was such a wonderful specialty. So many dimensions and so many challenges. It was a privilege, really, to have fallen into that area of medical specialty. I'll tell you one thing that excites me now, women. I'm so happy. I, uh, the president, I founded the New York Interocular and Plant Society. president is a woman. Uh, she's brilliant. Cynthia Matosian, I'll tell you her name. And she represents what I think the idea of female ophthalmology. They're contributing so much now. And they're very inventive. And they're braver than men. They'll go ahead and, and like Mar Marguerite McDonald, who's my resident, she, she's a master in ophthalmology, you know, well, and to segment and, and, uh, and high surface disease. So I'm so glad we have our ladies as our partners. I think that's one of the biggest breakthroughs in my lifetime. When I was in medical school, we had 10% uh, of the class, and that was a lot for women. Now it's two seats. So that's my that's my closing comment. All right, <laughs> I like it. I like it. And awesome. you want to extract anything else from me? I, you know, honestly, this <laughs> this has been amazing. Thank you so much. I I learned so much even just in this short time. I want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for helping support this editorially independent content. In particular, Alcon, who is a founding level sponsor of the season one of the History of Eye Care. And that concludes another episode of The History of Eye Care with your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your preferred platform. Don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episode information and to join in on the conversation.